Hello dear friends, welcome to another Life After Life Spirit Reports by Ellen Kardec. We're basing our study on the beautiful book of Heaven and Hell, written by Ellen Kardec. And to be precise, we're focusing on the second half of Heaven and Hell, because in that part, Ellen Kardec gifted us with spirit accounts, spirits who discarnated, incarnates who became discarnates, and came back to report about their transition and their experience on the other side. And in the last few months, we have focused on many different spirits, and Alan Kardec so beautifully cataloged them for us so that our study will be facilitated by his order. And we started off with the happy spirits, and then we moved on to the average spirits. And from the average spirits, we went to the suffering spirits. And then in the last couple of months, we have been focusing on suicides. Every night at 8 p.m. currently, Dr. Vanessa Anceloni is so kindly discussing the book Memoirs for, of Suicide by Yvonne Pereira, an unprecedented study, very educational. And if you have been listening to our suicide cases, you will understand the repercussions of suicide, which is one of the leading causes of death in the United States and probably in the world, better as a result. Of course, there is always, always support. And now today we will begin to study the repentant spirits. And our person, our spirit is named Vergier. Vergier was a priest. And he lived in the 19th century in France. And if you like to follow along, you can find his case on 427, page 427. Teresa, thank you so much, dear friend, for joining. It is so lovely to have you here. And please, if you're listening, I see a larger number than Teresa. Please say hello. Let's make this interactive. Let me know that you're here. If you have any questions or comments, um, you, they're very welcome. Thank you, friends. Yeah, so Berger is a priest. And on January 3rd, 1857, what happened? Monsieur Silbur, Silbur who was an archbishop of Paris, was mortally wounded by a young priest by the name of Berger. And as this archbishop was leaving the church of Saint Clem-Étienne du Mont, he was killed. The criminal was condemned to death and executed shortly thereafter. Up until the very end, Verger showed no feelings of regret, repentance, or sensitivity. Evoked only one day after his execution, he gave the following responses. And now let's see what happened. So we're, we're noting, we're making a no mental note that Verger did not have any feelings of regret, repentance, or sensitivity. He had to wait for his execution for approximately a month. And one day after his execution, he was evoked. I am still retained in my body, he says. Are we surprised. Hasn't your soul completely disengaged from your body? He's being asked. And he says, no, I'm afraid. I don't know. Wait until I can get my bearings. I'm not dead, am I? Are you sorry for what you did? Verger is being asked. And the answer by him is, it was wrong to kill, but I was forced to do it by my nature. I couldn't take humiliation. Evoke me some other time. Let us pause. So already we're learning that Verger killed this archbishop. Why? Because he was lacking 
humility. Now, we have talked about humility many, many times. And we know what the opposite of humility is. Do you want to guess? I'll give you a second. Pride. Pride is the antidote to humility. And we also learned that pride feeds selfishness. So pride is the parent, so to speak, and selfishness is the child. They usually live together. Alan Kardec was wondering in the Spirit's book, in question 93, what is the worst vice that we could have here on planet Earth? And I'm sure you already know the answer. It is selfishness and pride. So the worst vice we all could have is selfishness and pride. Why is that? Selfishness and pride are the antidote of charity, which is benevolence, indulgence, forgiveness, and that's the moral charity. How can we live in peace and in connection with other people? How can we turn this planet into a planet of love if we're lacking humility? Humility is one of those main virtues for us to daily work on. Now, if we're lacking humility, we cannot be charitable. It is the diametrically opposed vice to the highest virtue, which is charity. And we cannot be charitable if we're not humble, because it means we need to acknowledge that there is other people here, other people that are brothers and sisters under one God. We're all brothers and sisters, and God is our parent. So in order for us to love God above all else, we have to learn to be humble and love our neighbors as ourselves. It is a huge challenge here on planet Earth. And we who have been studying for so long are really invited one more time today to focus on our practice of humility. Now, if we want to look towards models of humility, where would we go? Alan um, Emmanuel dedicated a whole chapter, it's chapter 24 in his beautiful book, Thought and Life, to humility. It is a beautiful study, warmly recommended, because it explains to us the different facets of humility. And in that chapter, he invites us to, to look at two major role models, so to speak, in our lives that number one is everywhere. Can you guess what that is? Yes, it is nature. Nature is one of our main role models surrounding us everywhere in how in studying, experiencing and learning about humility. Let's look, for example, at the sun. The sun shines every day. There are clouds and sometimes we have the, we experience the illusion that there is no sun, but behind the sun, behind the clouds is the sun always. And when we take a flight and we go beyond the clouds, we always encounter the sun. Now does the sun make a difference between a mud puddle and the queen of England? No, sun shines indiscriminately on everything and everybody as much on a worm in a mud puddle as on the presidents and the richest and famous and noble people on this planet isn't that amazing the sun never wakes up in the morning and says oh i'm gonna decide not to shine i'm today i'm upset i am too prideful to actually shine on x y and z right so here is an invitation for us to become more like the sun, to let our light shine on everything and everybody, no matter whether they are appreciating us, no matter whether they are treating us with respect and gratitude, it doesn't matter to us. Now, if we look, for example, at a flower, this is another beautiful example. A flower spreads its perfume silently on everyone. It doesn't say, oh, there's sunshine, we're not gonna give her any beautiful smell. No, the, sun sh the, the, the flower spreads its perfume again indiscriminately, 
towards everyone. And if we, for example, observe when we humans destroy the earth, let's say a piece of property, a few years ago, the neighboring property to mine was logged because of um, pine trees that died. So close to 100 pine trees were logged and the property was thoroughly destroyed. And what happens? Earth creates new growth. The property that looked literally completely dismantled, raw soil like a big gaping wound Today, three years later, is covered in greenery, covered in new growth. There is no hardship that the earth is feeling. There is no being upset. There is no um, regrets. There is no um, rancor that the earth is holding. Humbly, it is just producing new plant, plant material, new growth. Isn't it beautiful, friends? So nature is one extremely potent model for us to study, to go into, to be in nature every day and observe the practice of humility. And these three examples are just three examples. Wherever we look, we find humility in nature. Now we have a second role model that is extremely powerful as well. And that is our guide and model, Jesus Christ. Jesus was not prideful. He was not selfish. He was born, he was extremely humble. He was the most humble human being that walked the earth. The most perfect, humble human being. Here is the governor of this planet being born in the manger on straw. Can you imagine? And he's being murdered, literally, and nailed to the cross next to common criminals. And he is not showing any attitude. He's not fighting back. He is not upset. On the contrary, he asks God for forgiveness for those who have taken his life. Now, if we really, really understand Jesus, we can't other than practice humility and start today to help us to become less prideful, and selfish. And we can see in Berger what happens when we do not practice humility, when we become prideful and selfish. Our feelings become blocked, our hearts close up. And out of that closeness of the heart, we commit crimes, we create dissent, we create wars and discord on this planet. So we know that this planet, that planet Earth is on the verge of its transition from a planet of atonement where pain is still reigning prim primarily to a planet of regeneration. And a planet of regeneration is a planet where love is becoming more dominant, a more dominant force. So for us to help not only ourselves, but our neighbors and of course the whole planet in its transition, it is vital for us to work on our selfishness and pride. Dear friends, let us go back to our friend Verger. The next question he's being asked is, why do you want to leave already? Because he was kind of like, okay, evoke me some other time. He says, you know, I couldn't take humiliation. This is why I committed this murder and leave me alone. So the person who is invoking him is asking, why do you want to leave already? And he says, I could be very scared if I saw him, meaning his victim, the archbishop who he killed. I would be very scared if I saw the archbishop. I fear he would do the same to me. Let's pause. Why would Berger be scared of being murdered himself? Well, first of all, he's still not clear that he's not in his physical body anymore. And that is very common, particularly among those who excarnate violently, abruptly, through execution, murder, suicide, accidents, and the like. It's the, the severance between the, the, the separation between the Paris spirit and the physical body is so abrupt that it takes a while 
and often those spirits mistake their perispiritual form which looks the same as their physical body to them as their physical body and so when he says he's scared that um, the archbishop might follow him and kill him too it's based on the fact that he's still not clear um, that he's not alive anymore but it is also shows us his state of consciousness it almost appears like he's still stuck in Moses's law of eye for an eye or at the level of fight or flight he's generating fear that the same that essentially Moses's law of an eye for an oven eye for an eye that exact punishment of what he had executed would be turned onto him he is not cognizant at this point of the fact that we're actually now practicing returning good for evil, which is thanks to Jesus who brought to us this new concept. And it's not so new anymore because we know it happened 2020 years ago. But it is interesting to see how Vergier, who was a priest actually, is right now not conscious enough of any of this he is completely going into fight or flight and regressing to moses's law so let us continue um but you have nothing to fear because your soul has separated from your body he's being um told banish all concerns they're not reasonable what do you want? Are you always in control of your feelings? I don't know where I am. I've lost my mind, Vergier says. Try to compose yourself, he is being told. I can't because I'm crazy. Wait, I'm going to try and get my thoughts back in order. So he was seeing he's totally agitated. If you were to pray, he's being told, would it help you to get your thoughts back in order? I'm scared. I wouldn't dare pray. Pray, for God's mercy is great, he's being told. We will pray with you. And now he says, yes, God's mercy is infinite. I've always believed that. Beautiful. Now, do you have a better understanding of your situation, he's being asked. And the answer by him is, it's so weird that I still can't figure it out. So Vergier is still very confused. But the person who is conversing with him is saying one very important thing. This person is suggesting prayer to him. Why prayer? Well, prayer is according to Emmanuel in thought and life. When we are turning the mirror of our minds and our hearts towards God, towards the higher realm. And when we turn that mirror towards the higher realm, we will be attracting God's light into our own hearts and minds, which will always have a calming, elucidating, transforming effect. Our connection with God will bring helpful spirits to our side and will allow us to feel consoled and calmer. Prayer is an invocation. And as Jesus educated us, before we pray, he invited us to forgive our enemies. And he went so far as to say, forgive 70 times seven, which really stands for just forgiveness is extremely important for us. And why is forgiveness so important before we pray? Well, we can imagine that when we don't forgive, our hearts close because at that moment we're holding anger and resentment towards other people or one other person resentment and anger and those feelings negative feelings they close our hearts now at this very moment how can we turn our mirror of our hearts towards God how can this mirror be clean and clear and actually then receive God's blessings into our lives how can we create an overflow from our hearts to God's heart if our hearts are closed. So it is vital that we will need to cleanse our minds and hearts and forgiveness is one of the major 
pathways to take. Now, why are we saying that? Because Roger was expressing his fear. He said, oh, I'm feeling scared. I can't pray. Well, it seems like instinctively he was aware of the fact, or maybe he was cognizant of the fact, that in order to pray, we must not feel fear. Because if we do, it doesn't mean we can't pray, but it's not as effective because our hearts are not open. And our connection to God consequently won't be as powerful. And uh, the benefits we receive won't be really as powerful as if our hearts are clear and wide open. When we're scared and we're holding negative emotions and we pray, which is really according to, to Emmanuel in Thought and Life in the chapter prayer, a focus of our minds. Every focus on, of our minds towards an activity is a form of prayer. Now, if we're feeling scared and we haven't forgiven or like Roger, scared, well, our prayers can easily turn into infernal prayers because our minds and our feelings stand as the mirror of life. So we are attracting what we're emitting. We're emitting fear and what are we attracting? And that can then easily not be a divine prayer because our hearts are closed, but becomes an infernal prayer. So it is vital for us to be clear and feeling open and loving in order to connect to God in a peaceful way, a reverent, peaceful, loving way. Now, the next aspect that we would like to look at is why is prayer, this person suggested to pray for Verger, why is prayer vital for those who have discarnated? And for that, we want to go to the Spirit's book because Alan Kardec was wondering about the exact same question. Question 665. Let us go to 665. Let us educate why it is important for us to pray for the dead, for the discarnated. So another thing is we learned uh, in, from the book Memoirs of a Suicide how important it is for us to always remember to pray for the suicide spirits because they are often the forgotten children of God. Because often the family members of suicides are holding some misgivings about their form of death and don't always receive a lot of prayers, but it is important for them. It helps them with their trial. And let us see what, what Alan Kardec found out here. He asked, what is to be thought of the opinion that rejects praying for the dead because it is not prescribed in the gospel? So he's asking, is there something that speaks against praying for those who have it discarnated? And the answer is, Christ said to all humankind, love one another, right? Love one another. This recommendation implies using all possible means to demonstrate love towards others. And prayer is a form of charity. It's a form of love. It's our thoughts and hearts reaching out to those who are in pain. The prayer you direct to God on behalf of those who inspire your love is for them a testimony of remembrance that consoles them and contributes towards relieving their sufferings. And that is why it is so important to pray for those who have discarnated and very important for those who have murdered like Verger and very important for those who have committed, who've, um, committed suicide. They can be helped when and only when they show the slightest repentance, but it will nevertheless cause them never to forget that sympathetic souls have been concerned about them. Dear friends, it is very important that we pray, that we pray for others in general and the discarnates, and it doesn't matter what kind, not only those of blood ties, Jesus taught us very clearly to reach out and embrace the universal family. And the universal family needs to be looked at with a bifocal lens. 
both in the spirit world as well as here on earth. In heaven and hell, you may remember several months ago last year, we talked about a case, Michelle Auguste. And in that, um, she asked for prayers and prayers were discussed by Alan Kardec. And there we learned that prayers for the discarnates exert a powerful magnetic action and it also not only consoles them and helps them in their pain that they often experience, but it also helps them to sever the ties that they may still have to their parent, to their physical form, from parent spirit to physical body. And we've learned that Verger, who was executed and still felt as if he was in his physical form, as if he was still incarnated needs that support of prayer and these prayers are extremely even more more powerful when they're happening close to the excarnated physical shell so to speak so these prayers express a magnetic action helping with the severance of those connections between the peri spirit and the physical form very interesting right friends so there's many different reasons why it is vital for us to pray for excarnated um, spirits as well and never to forget the suicide spirits either let us go back oh i'm seeing i'm seeing people oh wow i didn't even see it before there is Solange, Melissa Deline, dear friend, I need to say hi. So nice to see you. Thank you for joining us. And there's Tony. Thank you, Tony, for being here. So lovely to have you always. There's Adriana. Hi, Adriana. Buon noite. And then there is Solange, the sun rises for everyone. You're absolutely right. There is never a day where the sun has an attitude, right? We yet have to see it. So let us be more like sunshine and not this one, this one up there. And so then there's Rihanna. Rihanna, dear friend, thank you so much for being here. Say hello to South Africa and Tony. And then there is Solange. They receive the light when we pray for them. It makes them feel better. You're absolutely right. And why wouldn't we want to make anyone feel better? As Jesus said, love all. Love your neighbors as yourself. And by praying for others, we're practicing loving our neighbors as ourselves. And never to forget those excarnated spirits, right? We're always living in two worlds. Incarnate, in, always in the spirit world as well as here on earth. I... Oh, you Solange is so, 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 okay. All right, so let us go back. Um, now, three days later, three days later, um, Berger, three days after his execution, he gets invoked again. Let's see whether he has learned some lessons. Have you gotten your bearings more by now? He's being asked and he says, I now know I no longer belong to your world and I don't regret it a bit. So he doesn't regret not being part of planet Earth anymore. I regret what I did though, but my spirit is freer. I also know there is a series of lives that provide us with knowledge we can use in order to become as perfect as anyone can be. Now, this is pretty amazing that within three days, Verger had a huge turnaround. Remember before, after he uh, committed the murder and before his execution, he had no regrets whatsoever. He was still very prideful. Then he was executed a day later. Still, he had no feelings of remorse or um, regret. Now, three days later, already he recognizes he has done wrong. He regrets his action. He knows he is not in a body anymore, which he wasn't sure about it two days prior. And he knows that he will have many different lifetimes. So this really shows that our Verger is a more evolved spirit. Otherwise, he would have not jumped to, within three days to in his conscience to this level. Next question he's being asked, are you being punished for the crime you committed? Yes, he says, I regret what I did. And this makes me suffer. 
Now he's being asked, how are you being punished? And the answer by him is big. Now let us sit down and listen, but we're gonna take it apart. I am being punished because I realize my wrong and I ask God to forgive me for it. I'm being punished for my lack of faith in him and for knowing that we must not shorten the lives of our brothers. I'm being punished by the remorse of having delayed my progress, by taking the false path and for not listening to the cry of my conscience, telling me that it is not by killing that I would reach my objective. But I let myself be dominated by pride and jealousy. I was wrong and have repented because men must always make an effort to control their evil passions and I didn't. Wow, we're impressed. Roger is really quite wise. Within three days after his execution, he really changed incredibly. So let us see, he says, is the question that he's being asked, how are you being punished? Now, maybe all of us, or maybe just some of us, cringe a little bit when we hear the word punishment, correct? Because don't we know that there is no punishing God? It's only a loving, kind, benevolent God. So how can there be punishment? Well, we need to see this word in the context of the 19th century. And of course it was you know, translated from French. So we need to take it with a grain of salt. So what is really behind the word punishment? Plain and simple. What does punish, the so-called punishment equal? The law of cause and effect. That's what it is. Law of cause and effect. If I do something painful, something painful will happen to me. When we go to memoirs of a suicide, and I can't resist, but I have to do it, I have to open it. There is, in two different spots, a beautiful explanation of the law of cause and effect, how it really all originates with us. So I'm gonna not even try, attempt to put it into my own words, but I'm gonna go right to the horse's mouth and I'm gonna read this little section to you. So we're trying to understand the law of cause and effect, the mechanisms of the law of, the law of cause and effect. So it says here, So there is no punishment per se because no one inflicts punishment or hands down a sentence. We're relieved, right? So we're in, there is no sentence being handed down, handed down to us ever, even if we commit a murder or suicide. Doesn't matter what it is that we've done. There is no punishment and there is no sentence handed down to us. And this it comes from one of the um, um, guides here in um, the hospital of Mary of Nazareth. So then, all of us here who serve the law, God's law, will have made every effort allowable to bring relief to excarnate's dreadful situations. See, and that is the proof of the loving God. How beautiful. So we commit suicide and there is a phalange of helping spirits helping us to get through it. We're committing murder and they are there. And it doesn't matter what it is we're doing. We're being helped. There is no sentence coming down on us. There is no punishment. So let's see how it continues. What it really is, the law of cause and effect really is, is the effect the pain that we're feeling is the effect of the cause that we ourselves created with the excesses we took pleasure in. So it is our excesses that we practiced on earth that created the cause, uh, the, the cause that we are now experiencing the effect of and that causes us pain in many different forms. And even if it's just a recognition that we have indulged in passions 
negative passions, destructive passions, that we have taken pleasure in excesses. It could be drinking drugs, it could be anything, sex, whatever it may be, killing, taking our own lives. The realization of having done such a wrong is in the pain that results from that is the effect of the cause of practicing those excesses. So we have really done it to ourselves. Now let's go to the next page. And here it becomes even further clarified. Um, the law of cause and effect has been implemented by the Supreme Legislator for the purpose of warning human beings and spirits about the wrongs they commit in opposition to the harmony of all the other laws. God's laws are always in harmony, but if we infringe on God's laws, law of cause and effect will take care of it. Instead, looking at the punishment as having been imposed by the lawbreakers themselves, putting themselves in a position of suffering when they reincarnate. So, in other words, the punishment is the so-called punishment, the pain we're feeling. We impose on our own selves. We are the creators of our so-called punishment via the law of cause and effect. And that's a law. It's, it's, it's a law. So we are the originators. So there's no one coming to punish us. There's no one passing a sentence. We're creating the sentence. We're creating our own suffering. So let's see, let's finish this. Yeah. So we're putting ourselves in a position of suffering when we, after having practiced these excesses. I hope you guys really understand that we are the co-creators of our own future. Every thought of the way, every single day, we are planting seeds. And these seeds are either a beautiful effect for us, fragrant flowers on our path through the millennia from incarnation to incarnation, or they're thorny, thistly, plans and then the effect will be painful all right friends let's see where are you reading in memoirs of suicide for action and reaction okay yeah here um the first one was on page actually i have it written down if you go um teresa if you go to page 279 you'll find that and then page 283 to 279 and 283 those two passages are there Okay, so now our friend, um, no punishment. Now the next thing he says, um, he feels remorse. So he feels remorse. What is remorse? We know repentance, right? Well, if we go to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 to 11, there's an interesting distinction Paul makes for us. He says that between the worldly sorrow, namely remorse, and the godly sorrow, repentance, there is a difference. There is a difference between remorse and repentance. So remorse is a worldly sorrow, and repentance is a godly sorrow. So for example, if we feel remorse, I'm getting caught stealing some cookies out of the cookie jar as a child, and I'm not supposed to do that. I feel remorseful. It's a worldly thing, right? It's, it's a more mundane occasion. However, and it's the first step, it's the beginning of the, on the road to repentance. However, the de definition of repentance is really that we, it's between us and God. We turn to God and acknowledge our sins. And once we've reached, we've gone through the first step of feeling remorseful, the next step after that is feeling repentance. We're literally getting in touch with the sin we've committed. We are now in connection with God. And it's in heaven and hell where the penal code is being explained. The three steps to our 
um, rehabilitation. The three steps to our regeneration are one, number one, repentance. Repentance is the first step. It's that feeling and it needs to come from the heart of recognizing we have done wrong on the deepest level. And we're standing before God and feeling the pain of having committed whatever it is that we have committed. It is helpful for us to feel repentance and a must because it starts our path to our rehabilitation. It softens the path, it opens our hearts, it humbles us. And it creates hope, hope that there is a life after whatever crime we have committed. Nevertheless, repentance is usually quite painful for the spirits. That's what we have learned from the spirit reports for those who have felt repentance. Now, what is the second step of the penal code? What is the second step? Second step is expiation. I want to add, repentance can happen while we're incarnated and while we're excarnated, either way. Expiation is the vital next step. We've seen in the book Memoirs of a Suicide, for example, those spirits who've committed suicide, the ones that are being discussed there, at some point feel deep repentance. They're very sorry, they're really seeing that they made the wrong choice. And after having gone through many regenerative classes and programs and therapies, they're very clear that they need to reincarnate. And the reincarnation is their expiation. Very often expiation happens while we are in the flesh. And that is the physical and mental suffering that happens in our lifetimes. For example, in the case of a suicide, if we have used our hands to do wrong, we may be reborn with no hands. Or if we ran away from blindness, we may be born again with no eyesight. So in other words, whatever um, infringement in, in the law of God we committed, that is the effect that we will need to experience. Our expiation will, the, the, the bigger the crime is that we committed, the more we will be suffering in our following lifetime. That is the expiation. Now the third step, and of course there's a lot more and we invite you to read about it. I'm just putting in my own words, which is not doing it any justice. I'm just trying to explain those three steps. The next one is reparation. Well, reparation is something that happens often in that lifetime of expiation. What it really means is we are righting a wrong or several wrongs. We are picking up where we have left off. We're fulfilling the duties that we omitted fulfilling in the previous incarnation. And we have so beautifully learned from Emmanuel in Thought and Life in the chapter Duty that what is duty really? What is duty? It's not just um, doing the minimum, going to work and cutting corners wherever we can when the boss isn't looking. But we've, yeah, we've done our duty. We went to work and came back home. No, no, duty, Emmanuel really opens the ceiling up to a cathedral and tells us that duty is um, a series of activities in the realm of goodness. So we're doing the good. We're fulfilling our duty, and while we're fulfilling our duty, we're also being of service. We're doing the good. In other words, in order to undo the shackles that we've forged against our own souls, remember the law of cause and effect, we've done it to ourselves. Emmanuel asks us, urges us to seek goodness, to feel goodness, to visualize goodness and mold goodness with all the resources we can we muster every single thought of the way so to speak and that will help us with our reparation expiation 
And of course, repentance comes before that. So we know what to do. We just have to do it, right, friends? The bar is high, but we know we can do it. We do it together. And it helps that we're all meeting here in our intercontinental classrooms, invigorating ourselves, taking pills of vitamin pills, as our dear friend Carol Cohere says, the vitamin pills for our soul. They strengthen us. So let us go back to Vergeer. So what else did he say? He said, um, um, cry of my conscience. I didn't listen to the cry of my conscience. Why would that be so important, to listen to our conscience? Well, we know that there is God's laws. And we can beautifully find them in the third part of the Spirit's book. A beautiful study, a very vital study, and a very important read to understand them. Alan Kardec asked, apart from that we find them in the Spirit's book, which is quite the luxury, but where are God's laws written really? Where are they permanently ingrained in? I know you know the answer. And I'm envisioning you all typing the answer right now. It's God's laws are in our conscience. We carry them with us from lifetime to lifetime. So why do we need to study them? Why do we need to go to the Spirit's book and read them and educate ourselves? Well, Alan Kardec was wondering about that too. And the answer from the illuminated spirits was, because we forget. Don't we forget, right? We might have known them in the past life. Maybe we didn't. But then they're not in our conscience, consciousness in this lifetime. So that's why Alan Kardec served us so beautifully by outlining them in question and answer form in the third part of the Spirit's book. So Vergier was not listening to his conscience, the cries of his conscience saying, don't do it, don't kill him, don't be prideful, don't be selfish, don't commit this, this crime. And we often do that. How often do we? And this is one question we could ask ourselves because we're invited to feel these lessons. Are we listening to our conscience? Are we? Are we pausing enough to question our conscience in our day-to-day -day choices we make, starting with our thinking, our feelings, our words, our actions? On a scale from zero to 10, thank you, Vanessa, for bringing this to us. This is such a powerful tool because it's not enough that we just listen to the lessons we get from these spirits, we need to feel it. The nightly review is a beautiful way of going within and seeing where we're at. Are we committing crimes through our thinking? Are we killing with our thoughts? Where's our conscience? And it's our conscience that brings up, I know from my own experience, those things that are not quite right, they pop up first. But we need to look at it. We need to take the time. We need to focus on it. All right, so we're doing that. And then what is the next one? Pride and jealousy. Uh, but I let myself be dominated by pride and jealousy. So we've talked already about pride. We know that it's the mother of or father, the parent of, of selfishness. We know it's one of the worst vices, the most the rampant one on planet Earth. And it's the root cause of all evil. And of course, Jealousy is born out of selfishness and pride. Also comes from fear. It's, there's nothing um, illuminated about that. So we know that, that he had suffered from that. And then he says, men must always make an effort to control their evil passions. Why would Verger give us that lesson? Why do we need to look at our passions? Well, we know we all have passions and passions are really vital because Good passions lead us to do the good. So if we feel passionate about doing the good, we will follow Manuel's um, prescription of feeling, visualizing, expressing good always, molding goodness every step of the way. But if our passions are turned towards darkness and destruction, then we're in trouble. And this is what Berger is talking about. Well, Ellen Kardec had a question about passions in the spirits book 
and the answer he received about passions is a beautiful comparison that passions are like a wild horse and if we don't rein in the horse those passions that are not turned towards God and the good can cause severe destruction. We know wild horses, unbridled horses, they can really destroy their environment. So if passions run the show and go wild, we're in trouble. So we need to learn to work with our passions, to educate them. We need to work with our prefrontal cortex. We have it as human beings. In the prefrontal cortex, I'm not a specialist in that, but the way I understand it, that's our pause button. That is our area where we can take a breath, breathe, and step back and say, is this really serving me? Do I need to follow my instincts? Do I really need to fight or flight? No, I don't anymore because I have the prefrontal cortex, the light of discernment. I can take every situation, I can take the time out, and I can deeply breathe and push that pause button to look at my passions and see what do I need to change here. Right, friends? Jesus was the most perfect model in having a extremely developed prefrontal cortex. We know Jesus never got angry. He never reacted. He just responded wisely to every situation with love and kindness. It is really we are invited to nurture our adult self and not follow, not remain being two years old and temper tantrum any longer. Let us remind ourselves of this pause button and the light of discernment that is burning inside of our minds. Let us continue. After being evoked, Monsieur Silbour, now if you may remember, that was the archbishop who was murdered, said that he had forgiven the murderer and prayed that he would return to the good. How beautiful. He also said that although he had been present at the evocation, he did not show himself to Berger, so that he would not increase Vergea's suffering. Very kind, isn't it? The mere fear of seeing his victim was a sign of remorse and was already a punishment in and of itself. This is what the Archbishop said. So he knew that Vergea was already on his way of repentance. And um, in his kindness, the Archbishop did not want to increase Vergea's pain. That is pretty special after having been murdered by friends. That shows a more developed, higher spirit. When choosing their new existence, do those who commit murder know they will become murderers? Wow, good question, we have that too. So when we have been murderers and we choose a new life, do we become murderers again? And the answer is no. They know that in choosing a life of struggle, it is likely that they will kill a fellow man, but they do not know whether they will actually do it or not, for there is almost always an inner struggle. So in other words, we're not being born destined to murder or commit suicide, for example. No, but we may feel tempted to repeat the crime because there's a weakness there. There have been quite a few cases of suicides who have then reincarnated and felt very tempted to, to taking their lives again and actually have done it. And the same is with murderers. They will have a life of struggle, as the spirits tell us here, and they may feel tempted to murder again. But that is where the inner transformation hopefully will help them, their conscience, their learned lessons on the other side during life after life that will prevent them from going there. So now there is um, just some small print explanation here. Vergea's situation at the moment of his death is like that of almost all of those who perish as a result of a violent death. The separation of the soul does not occur all at once. So they remain in a state of bewilderment and do not know if they're alive or dead. Yes. Violent death is something that Alan Kardec talks about in the Spirits book. If you want to go to question 161, 
we learn more about it because violent deaths are murders, they're um, accidents, suicides. Here's the question. In violent or accidental death, when the organs are not yet debilitated by age or disease, right? They might still be young people. Does the separation of the soul and the cessation of life occur simultaneously? So does the separation of the soul from the body and at the actually happen at the same moment that the life, the death occurs? Does it happen simultaneously? And the answer is usually so. In any case, however, the instant that separates them is very short. So at that moment, boom, separation happens. However, let's continue. 162. In all cases of violent death, that means when death does not result from a gradual extinction of the vital forces, the bonds that join the body to the perispirit are more tenacious and complete separation is slower. We can imagine that, right? Because in a natural occurring death takes sometimes a long time before the person actually discarnates. And in that process of prolonged illnesses or increasing weakness due to old age does not always take an illness to do that. The separation happens slowly by slowly, little by little. And at the time of death, it's complete. But when it's severed like that, and all the organs and the vitality is still going strong, it takes quite a while at times. 165, for those who experience those deaths, at the moment of death, everything appears confused at first. The soul needs some time to recognize itself. It feels dazed, like someone waking out of a deep sleep who tries to understand the situation. The lucidity of its ideas and the memory of its past return as the influence of the matter from which it has just freed itself is extinguished. This confusion presents particular aspects depending on the character of the individual. In violent deaths, suicide, capital punishment, right? Those capital punishment situations here in the United States, accidents, stroke, mortal wounds, etc. The spirit is surprised and astonished. It does not believe itself to be dead, like Regier at first. It stubbornly persists in asserting that it has not died. Moreover, it sees its body lying there and knows who it belongs to, but does not understand that it is now separate. It seeks out loved ones and speaks to them, but cannot understand why they cannot hear it. And that is painful for most spirits. This illusion lasts until the separation of the Paris spirit is complete. And only then does it realize its situation and understand that it is no longer part of the world of the living. This phenomena is easy to explain. Surprised by its unforeseen death, the spirit is stunned by the sudden change that has taken place. It still believes that death is synonymous with destruction and annihilation. And since it continues to think, see and hear, it does not consider itself to be dead. This illusion is strengthened by the fact that it finds itself in a body similar to the one it just left behind, and that is the Paris spirit. So it explains here why, where were we? Why um, Vergea was experiencing this confusion. I'm crazy, I don't know, I'm still alive, what's going on, right? Vergea, um, So Verger added to the enormity of his crime by not repenting before dying. Remember, he had 30 days between the crime he committed and his execution, and he had no repentance. So he added to his crime. However, there is a mitigating circumstance. However, he had hardly left the earth when repentance dawned on his soul. Remember, he repudiated his past and sincerely desired to make reparations. It was not excessive suffering that drove him to make such a resolution. It came three days after his execution. It was really fast. It was thus the sole cry of his conscience which he had disregarded while alive. 
but which he now hears. So only three days later, he got in touch with his conscience. How beautiful. We might be amazed at how quickly a change of ideas sometimes occurs in the minds of hardened criminals at the last minute and whose passage to the other side is enough to make them realize the iniquity of their conduct. Like our Vergier, he quickly realized that he had done wrong. And that is pretty rare. That does not happen with every spirit. It shows that he must have been a more evolved spirit at the end of the day. Obstinacy and evil during life is sometimes the result of a pride that refuses to yield and acknowledge mistakes because humans are under the influence of matter which casts a veil over their spiritual perception and deludes them. We know about that, right friends? When this veil is lifted, the light suddenly dawns and they find they have sobered up. The immediate return of better sentiments is always an indication of some moral progress which only waits for a favorable opportunity in order to reveal itself. And we're wrapping up. On the other hand, those who persist in evil for a more or less prolonged period of time after death are undeniably less evolved spirits in whom the materialistic instincts have suffocated the seed of the good. So dear friends, what have we learned today? Regia was a more evolved spirit he didn't really manifest it so much during his lifetime because obviously he committed murder out of pride and selfishness. But it only took him three days to realize that he had done wrong. He knew there were many lifetimes for him to improve himself. He felt repentance. He realized that he had a conscience and he needed to listen to it. He also realized that he needed to learn humility. He learned that he needed to be more charitable and for us we are reminded to pray to pray for all those in need and for all other people may they be friends family members or the universal family enemies alike we need to pray it's a form of charity and we learned that we need to educate our passions to the good in order for us to visualize the good, to feel the good, to mold the good, to express the good, to speak the good, to act the good with all the resources we can muster, friends. Let us do a closing prayer with gratitude to God, our creator, and Jesus Christ, our guide and model and Mother Mary, who is enveloping us, us with her blue loving cloak, always present where there is suffering in both realms. We thank Alan Kardec for his meticulous work of bringing these spirit accounts to our attention, to us, for years to come, for us to study, to learn, to understand of how we can prepare ourselves best in our lifetimes for our transition and our life after life. We thank him for bringing pain spirits from suicides to repentant criminals to us as well so we may learn of how to avoid mistakes they made, learning from mistakes of those who came before us. We pray that for the week in the week to come, we will be able to incorporate this lesson into our lives to pray more for others in both realms, to remind ourselves of the nightly review so as we can get in touch with our conscience in a renewed and improved way. And we're praying to remind ourselves to practice humility to return good for evil, to not insist on pride and selfishness ever. Dear God, we thank you for allowing us to gather tonight on this beautiful platform of the international classroom called Kardec Radio. Thank you to the mentors of Kardec Radio. 
Thank you to each and every single one, listeners, mentor. Thanks to God, to Mother Mary, for this beautiful gathering and the beautiful immortal lesson tonight, nourishing our souls always. It is with humility and gratitude that we're closing tonight's study group. And so be it, dear friends. Thank you for joining. Thank you for being here. Have a beautiful week. And so God willing, we will meet again next week, same place, with another case of a repentant criminal. Good night, dear friends.